Isaiah chapter 45. The prophet Isaiah chapter 45. We've been making our way through this book and find ourselves here this morning. We'll read verses 1 to 13. Again, God's word from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1 to 13. Give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. But you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Or to him who says to a father, woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, loved ones, in this passage, God is revealing to us his mysterious ways through his strange pick of a liberator his saving purposes, and his sovereign prerogative. And those will be our three points this morning as we examine this text. First, we consider the Lord's strange pick for a deliverer. Last week, we saw how God was promising to be with his people even as they went into exile, as they would soon be carried off into Babylon. And he promised as well that later he would gather them back into their homeland in the future. God was going going to call his people from the ends of the earth back to himself. And those promises left the Israelites hungry 
hungry for that future salvation. Yes, God was sending them into exile, but that was not the end of the story. It would not last forever. God had a plan of salvation to go find his people and bring them back. The Lord our God is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in order to go find that one last sheep, and he was going to do that. He was going to go find his lost sheep that were scattered about in the Babylonian captivity and bring them back to his protective care. And so all that left the Israelites with a lot of hope, but also expectations. And in particular, they were longing for the fulfillment of a prior promise that God had made to his servant, King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where there God promised that one of David's descendants, one of his offspring, would be raised up and seated on the throne in God's kingdom, and that God would give to that son of David all the nations of the world to rule and reign over. And so this was the hope that the Israelites had fixed in their mind, that God was going to raise up a Davidic king, the anointed one, the Messiah. That was in their mind when they thought of and hungered for that future salvation that God would bring That's what they were thinking about until they arrived at this passage here. And here Isaiah rocks their boat big time. Isaiah tells them that God's anointed savior would be a pagan Persian emperor named Cyrus. What? Just imagine their shock. This must have hit them like a pile of bricks, to be honest. This was a strange pick for a deliverer. Instead of delivering his people from their captivity in Babylon by a Jewish Messiah, a descendant of David, God was going to deliver them from the hands of pagans and put them into the hands of different pagans. It must have seemed like God was taking them out of the frying pan and throwing them into the fire. Maybe you felt that way. You find yourself in a difficult situation And so you pray that God would save you from it, rescue you from that, and lo and behold, the situation changes and it actually gets worse. Now, how do we make sense of the way that God moves? How do we make sense of what we call the providence of God, his everywhere present power, whereby he's governing all things? Well, here is Isaiah's point, that since God powerfully controls all events of life, Nothing is meaningless. Everything is purposeful, measured, wise, and loving, even his strange acts of providence. Even the suffering and the affliction that we go through in life is all part of God's larger plan to defeat evil and to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven for his glory and for our good. And that's why... Here in this passage, Isaiah emphatically declares to us that Cyrus, this Persian emperor to be, was God's own choice. His arrival in human history was not an accident at all. It was not happenstance. It was according to God's plan. Cyrus was handpicked by God in order to deliver his people from exile in Babylon. And so that means that God was behind it all orchestrating all of the details of the events. And perhaps you need to hear this this morning. Just because things don't pan out 
exactly the way that you expected and hoped for does not mean that God is not in control. Isaiah here is showing us that God is in control even when things seem to take a turn for the worse. He is still sovereign. And this was important for the Israelites to understand because Cyrus was generally bad news for the nations that he conquered. But God is here saying basically to them, what appears to be bad news is actually good news. Why? Because I'm in control over it all. Cyrus is under my control. Think of this. Even the most powerful people in the world, like Cyrus in his day, are still under the control of God. They might think they have absolute power and authority. You might think that about yourself. But no other human, even if no other human in life is telling a king or an emperor what he must do or commanding him, even if he is the, the top dog commanding everyone else, even in that situation, behind him stands the king of kings. And God's hand is directing even the heart of the kings, the presidents, and the prime ministers of the world. We find that in Proverbs 21, verse 1, which says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he wills. The Lord God is turning the, the heart of kings to where God wants it to go. And this is good news for us. This is good news because things in life might look like they're spinning out of control in the world or in your own personal life. But in actuality, they are spinning exactly the way God has determined them to spin. God's invisible hand is behind all things, directing even the hearts of kings for his greater purposes. Now, but what was God's greater purpose in picking Cyrus, this strange pick for a liberator? That brings us to our second point, that God had saving purposes for picking Cyrus, the Lord's saving purposes here. First of all, God intended to use Cyrus as a picture, a picture of the coming Messiah, the true Messiah. So God chose Cyrus in order to, in a sense, build anticipation for the arrival of his anointed, the truly anointed one, Jesus Christ. And so Cyrus is kind of like a foil uh, in literary terms of the true Messiah who was to come. And that's why God here speaks of Cyrus in terms that are messianic and Davidic. In the chapter just prior, chapter 44, verse 28, there God says, Cyrus is my shepherd. Remember that King David was a shepherd boy. And the metaphor of shepherd became the dominant metaphor for understanding the role of a king as kind of shepherd over his people. Not only that, at the very beginning of our passage here in verse 1 God calls Cyrus his anointed his anointed which is the same word in Hebrew for Messiah to whom he gives the nations to subdue and to rule them this language is very Davidic kingly language that's derived very much from Psalm 2 where we read this in Psalm 2 the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so even though Cyrus was this pagan ruler, Cyrus's life and his kingship pictured beforehand who Jesus would be. It was building anticipation for the arrival of the true king of kings. And it's fascinating. The history of Cyrus the Great, as he is called in history, is incredible. Uh, There are many historical accounts of his life. He lived from the year 600 B.C. to 530 B.C. Of course, he was the founder of the Persian Empire. And his empire did, in fact, take over and engulf all of the competing powers in his day in the Middle East. His kingdom was the largest that the world had seen in that day. And so one ancient artifact is of particular importance related to our passage here in Isaiah and the whole biblical story. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it dates back to the year 539 BC when the Persian Empire had conquered Babylon. It was discovered under the foundation of an ancient building that was erected after Cyrus took over Babylon. And the Cyrus Cylinder there announces his policy, his policy that encouraged deportees or those who were exiled to return to their homeland and to reestablish their religious sites in their lands. And that fits very well with what Isaiah declares to us here in this passage and where we find elsewhere in the Old Testament, like Ezra, for example, which speaks of this edict that Cyrus made to authorize and encourage the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild their temple. And so Isaiah is saying, this is what God is going to do through Cyrus. He's saying this all beforehand as a prophecy. Look at verse 13 of our passage. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free not for price or reward. So years before this all happened, through his prophet Isaiah, God was telling the world how it was all going to go down and how God was going to make use of Cyrus in order to make it happen. And in verse 3, we hear that God did all of this so that, he says, speaking to Cyrus directly, you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. And so when Cyrus came to power, and in his life he fulfilled these prophecies, he should have acknowledged and submitted to the God of Israel who had predicted it long before. Because of all the ancient religions, only the God of Israel had predicted the name and the career of Cyrus. And yet Cyrus never acknowledged fully the Lord God of Israel as the one true God. Rather, on that cylinder of Cyrus. There he accredited his success to a pagan god named Marduk. Now God, he knew that Cyrus was not going to eventually bow down to him, and so his purpose was not to save Cyrus personally, but rather his purpose was to save his chosen people. And that's exactly what the Lord God says to Cyrus in verse 4 of our passage. In verse 4 he says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. This is a very important point 
for us. God is in control of all events, but what is motivating him in his control of all things? Well, Isaiah tells us here, he is motivated for the sake of his people and love for his people. This should remind us of a beloved passage in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He is working all things together for the sake of his chosen people. And so we see that God's providence serves God's plan of salvation for his people, that nothing happens by chance or accident. Rather, he's working all things together, both the good and the bad things, to serve his saving purposes in the world. That means that even terrible sufferings are part of God's plan and somehow mysteriously fit into his saving purposes. And that's what Paul, or that's what God says here in verse 7. Look at verse 7, a striking verse. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God here is claiming total sovereignty over all things, including evil. That doesn't mean that God approves of evil in any way, but it does mean that evil is under his control and that he uses it to serve his greater purposes. Theologian Herman Bavink writes this, Nature is subordinate and serviceable to grace, and the world is likewise subject to the kingdom of God. Thus, through all its tears and suffering, Faith looks forward with joy to the future. Although the riddles are not resolved, faith in God's fatherly hand always again arises from the depths and even enables us to boast in our afflictions. That's exactly what Isaiah wanted the Israelites to know and what he wants us to know as well. That everything that happens in this world is serviceable to God's kingdom and his grace. Subordinate to his kingdom and his grace. And that means that if you belong to the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that everything that happens is ultimately serviceable to you and your well-being in Christ. Remember, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And yes, even great tragedies. It was with this perspective that Job after he faced a terrible tragedy where he lost all of his children, responded to his wife saying, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job is saying there that we must receive good things from God with thankfulness and also receive evil things from God that come our way with faith in his saving purposes. That does not mean that we take any joy or, in, or delight in the bad things that happen to us. Not at all. Over and over again, God calls us to mourn over the evil that exists in the world or that comes to us in life, to cry, to weep. And yet by faith, we must receive all acts of God's providence as we look forward with joy to the coming of his kingdom when God will set all things right and every wrong will be made right in the kingdom of God. 
And so in this passage, we can see that God is, in a sense, pulling back the curtain to reveal his mysterious way of providence. And we earlier sang that hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Like Isaiah, that hymn is calling us to look beyond the difficult providences in life to trust in God's saving purposes. Listen again to these words from the hymn. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye dread so much are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That last line is so important there. Sometimes life circumstances are so bad and so dark that it seems like God is frowning down upon us. But when we learn to trust in God's grace and his saving purposes, then we can trust that behind those dark clouds shines God's smiling face upon us. That he is working even those terrible things together for our good in some mysterious way. And that's what God declares in verse 8 of our passage. Look at it. He commands the heavens to rain upon the earth, and it rains. And he commands the earth to bear fruit, and it bears fruit. And so too, God commands all things for his purposes to bring about what? His righteousness and his salvation on earth. The whole world is under God's control. He rules all things for this purpose to secure the coming of his kingdom on earth. And so it shall be. So we've seen that God has some strange picks, and also he does that with his saving purposes. He picked Cyrus, a pagan ruler, to deliver his people from exile. And even though he did not save Cyrus, he left Cyrus in his sin and misery of unbelief. Even still, God used him as his own instrument for his saving purposes. And that might leave us with a big question. Does God have the right to do that with people? Now, how does Isaiah respond to that answer? Yes, he does. God has the absolute right and authority to do whatsoever he pleases. And that's our third point, the Lord's sovereign prerogative And that's found in verses 9 through 10 of our passage, where Isaiah uses two illustrations to prove the same point. A potter exercises unquestionable sovereignty over the clay that is in his hands. He's in control of that clay and does whatever he pleases with it. As well, parents possess the sole right to rule over their children. Now, these two examples were very clear in Isaiah's day. Nobody would say to Isaiah, wait a second, Isaiah, that's not really fair to the clay. The clay should have some say in how it's made, right, and what it's going to be used for. And nobody would say, hold on, Isaiah, the children, the children have, they should have a say in how the parents run and rule the family. These were clear, common sense points in Isaiah's day. A potter and a father have the right and authority over the clay and the children, respectively. But here's the problem for us. In many ways, we have lost our common sense on this matter as a culture. We live in a society where we claim that nobody is king over us. 
And nature hates a vacuum. And so instead of having one king over us, one who is sovereign over us, we have a society where we all think we are kings and autonomous and sovereign in and of ourselves. Since we don't bow down to anyone as sovereign in life except ourselves, we find it really hard to bow down to God as our sovereign king. We have a hard time accepting God's complete control over all things, especially ourselves. But this actually isn't even a a new problem to humanity. It's actually been hard for all humans to accept God's sovereignty because it means basically two things. One, we are not in control. And two, we are at the mercy of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans chapter 9, where he speaks about the sovereignty of God, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 45, our passage this morning. There in Romans 9, Paul says, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, this is the point. God has absolute executive power. His sovereignty is original, eternal, and unlimited. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are at his mercy. What does that mean for you? It means that you must bow down to God as your king and your savior with faith in Jesus Christ. Like Cyrus, you are already part of God's story. You can't escape God's story. All of life is part of his story, and God is already using you for his saving purposes. But the question is this, do you know God by faith? Are you part of those who love God, are known by God, and trust in Him? If so, then you are a vessel of His mercy, prepared beforehand for His glory. But if you refuse to acknowledge the Lord as God, as your Savior and your King, then you are a vessel of wrath, prepared beforehand for destruction, like Cyrus. Your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, reveals what kind of vessel you are in the potter's hand, in God's hand. It reveals who you are. If you look to Jesus as God's strange pick for a deliverer, the truly anointed Savior, the one to whom Cyrus pointed, and if you see God's saving purpose for you through the death of Jesus on the cross, then you belong to him. Then you are a vessel of his mercy. And if so, Christian, rejoice, because God is working all things together for your good. You were predestined, called, justified, and you shall be glorified in the end. God has so promised, and it shall be. But if you reject Jesus, be warned. Cyrus, he had a great run in life. He had lots of success. He was on the top of the world, literally, in his day and age. 
And God even used him for his saving purposes. But then Cyrus died. And he met his maker and his judge. The very one that Cyrus refused to bow down to and give his life over to. And Cyrus then was judged, weighed and found wanting of righteousness and salvation because he was not found with faith in God and the coming Messiah. According to the Bible, Cyrus the Great is therefore currently suffering under the wrath of the King of Kings for his stubborn unbelief. And such will be the case for all who refuse to swear allegiance to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. You've heard the warning. You've heard that warning issued. Now here at the close, the invitation from God, which comes in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, verse 22, which some say is a summary statement of the entire book of Isaiah. God's invitation to the nations, to us this morning. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Turn to him. He is God, and there is no other. Let us pray. Lord God, we come before you and submit to your mysterious ways. Indeed, you have picked strange elements in your story, including Cyrus. And indeed, your Messiah was a strange pick from Nazareth and one who came from humble beginnings. And there is no outward beauty or appearance to him, and yet he was your chosen beloved son. And Lord, you work in mysterious ways for your saving purposes and indeed, we recognize your saving purpose, even through the strange, mysterious death of Christ on the cross for us. It is only through his death that we have been delivered from the power of death over us. It is through his suffering on our behalf that we have been forgiven. And it is through his resurrection that we have hope. Lord, we do pray and ask that uh, you would grant us faith, each and every one of us here in this room, to bow down before you, to swear allegiance to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, trusting that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you, those who are called according to your purpose. Lord, give us this faith. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.